Welcome, baseball fans, to the Running the Bases podcast. I just wanted to say a few things about the state of the country and the state of the world before we get to today's episode. Um, Everybody is going through a very difficult process with this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, In the United States, it's truly unprecedented. Uh, There's no amount of hyperbole uh, that is unfit to describe this situation. You have to go back to 1918 to find something even remotely close to this. We've all been watching from a distance, and it's been frightening, and it's been confusing. And in the sports world, obviously, we are without sports. We are on an indefinite pause for not only baseball, but basketball, hockey, soccer, everything right now. So I just want to encourage everyone to stay safe, follow the guidelines from the CDC, the National Health Institute, all of the experts from the science and health community that are telling us basically the same thing. We need to socially distance. We need to self-isolate. We need to take extra caution with washing our hands, keeping our hygiene as clean as possible, and we will get through this. There is a brighter day on the horizon, and in this time of quarantine and self-isolation, I'd like to think it's somewhat of a meditation where we all can take time to really examine what goes on inside of us as an individual. So at Running the Bases, we're proud to release finally our first episode of the RTB Book Club. This is uh, actually recorded from two years ago um, and due to failures of my own for the most part, I just did not publish it. Um, but now, given the circumstances, this felt like the perfect time to re- publish this podcast, uh, and we're going to do a lot more of this. Um, since we're without day-to-day baseball, we've got a lot of plans to do more book club reviews, talk about Sim League baseball, and talk about baseball history. And you know, to our baseball family, we're all in this together. We're here together, even though we have to be separate. And Coach and I are going to make an effort to just make as much content as possible as well as all the other baseball content creators out there. So we have something to distract us for a little bit, something to take our minds off of the current situation. So stay safe. Uh, Please enjoy this episode of the Running the Bases book club. Uh, If it sounds a little dated, that's because it is. And uh, thank you so much. Welcome, baseball fans. It is time for a very special edition of the Running the Bases podcast. This will be the first episode of the RTB Book Club, a special podcast that features a deep dive into a work of baseball literature. Um, And we are going to emphasize fictional works uh, that are about baseball centered around or take place within the sphere of the game of baseball. I am Tucker Wells. For our first episode, we're going to talk about none other than The Natural by Bernard Malamud. Uh, widely thought of as the seminal work of baseball literature, which is ironic considering the author knew nothing of baseball history uh, at the time before he started writing the book. So I'm joined, as always, by Coach Jordan Bounds, who was a world-renowned high school literature professor in his former life. How you doing, good sir? World-renowned? World-renowned. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the IB scores at your, from your classes were better than anywhere in the world, if I remember correctly. Well, uh, we're not going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, who better to talk about baseball literature or books in general and baseball than the man who taught this very book, The Natural, to high school sophomores like myself? But then we're also joined by a very special guest, Mr. Clayton Trudor, distinguished author of Overcoming Adversity, the History of the Tony Canigliaro Award, uh, or you're the editor of that book. Is that right? Correct. Yes, I'm the co-editor with Bill Nolan, who has edited many, many books for the Society for American Baseball Research. Right, right. Which we discussed the overcoming adversity on this very podcast a year ago. I uh, can't believe it's taken that long to get you back. So, gentlemen, welcome. We certainly, we certainly did. And I also remember predicting that Aaron Judge was going to be the rookie of the year. Not that that was a real stab in the dark, but I felt pretty good about that. Yeah. I had your boy up in Boston winning it. As did I. I was the bien intendi guy as well. Well, it's really great to have both of you on for for this. So right out of the box, The Natural by Bernard Malamud. Coach, I'm going to throw it to you. Tee up The Natural for someone who hasn't read it before. Well, if you, I mean, if what you know is your knowledge of the Robert Redford movie, uh, you're going to be very disappointed with the end of the the novel. And actually, it's not, I don't know that I would call The Natural a novel. Uh, Malamud was more of a short story writer. Now, his book, The Fixer, won the National Book Award and was a Pulitzer Prize winner and, uh, and all this sort of stuff. But The Natural is really just a short story uh, with a combined novella kind of at the end of it. The pregame is really a short story unto itself. Uh, it has all the characteristics of it. And then the rest of it's really too short to be a novel. Um, his best works were really, you know, The Magic Barrel and uh, several collections of short stories. Um, Clayton, had you read this before? This was the first time I'd read the book. I'd seen the movie on many occasions as a child. I'd had the book sitting on my bookshelf for about 15 years. I remember buying it at a used bookstore one day in the early 2000s, expecting it to read it that summer, but that never happened. Finally, us doing this podcast about baseball literature gave me a reason to read it, and it was a great opportunity. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. As I enjoyed the film, they're, they're, they're very different things, as I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, yes, I thoroughly enjoyed this opportunity to finally read The Natural. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm terribly read, as Coach will uh, <laughs> tell you, Clayton, as you may or may not know. Um, <laughs> but this is my one of my absolute favorite books of, uh, of all time. Uh, one of the few that I've actually uh, went out of my way to read twice. If it's an article, I'm good to go. But something about the long-form books, I don't know. I struggle with that. Um, but uh, I will say that you know, if it weren't for this book, we may not be here doing this podcast right at this very minute, because for anyone who loves baseball, I mean, this book captures the poetry of baseball so well. That was the first time that because I had read, you know, we've both read a lot of nonfiction baseball over the years. But when I read this in uh, 10th grade, it was like, ah, the, you know, this transcends baseball. This has elements of, you know, the Knights of the Round Table and, you know, uh, myth and so on and so forth. So, Coach, you talked about Malamud, the author Bernard Malamud, um, that he was more of this is more of a collection of short stories. That was his forte. Uh, what was his knowledge of baseball before writing such a rich baseball novel? Zilch, zero. Right, he absolutely didn't know none. No, uh, what he does know. I mean, what 
the format for the book, the structure of it is Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, his 17 stages of the the monomyth, uh, the hero's journey, which uh, this kind of ultimate narrative archetype that he takes from Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Uh, the These 17 stages are, are all really identifiable in the natural and what Malama does is apply the vegetative myths of the Arthurian legends, uh, all of these, you know, the things with the Fisher King and all of this stuff, and applies this to this uh, myth journey. Uh, and it's very esoteric. He believed that if he is going to show the national myth hero, all societies have these heroes. Uh, there's El Cid in Spain and Robin Hood in uh, England and uh, Cuculin in, in Ireland. I mean, uh, these uh, there's Jesus and Moses and <laughs> these uh, national myth heroes are everywhere. And they all follow this same pattern that Campbell outlines. The But except for our country, the United States doesn't have a national myth hero. And Malamud believed if he was going to have one, if he was going to have a hero from America, he had to come from the field of baseball. Uh, Literally. Yes. uh, And uh, the difference is, at the end, what Malamud says is that there is no hero in the United States because we fail for, you know, we buy into our appetites. Right. Spoiler alert, if you've seen the movie, uh, the movie has a happy ending and the book does not. Um, what's interesting to me is how, you know, the book, the the, the journey of Roy Hobbs, our, our mythic hero, um, is set up in, 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 in chapters and in episodes. And for Malamud, who didn't know anything about baseball, he takes from from historical baseball figures and events to craft the narrative so Clayton, I'm curious. You reading this for the first time? Did you pick up on where the episodes in the book uh, were were stolen from the headlines, so to speak? Yes, yeah, certainly. There were several very key episodes which clearly influenced the book. Some of them in the very recent past for when he wrote this book. The uh, The Natural came out in 1952. Just a few years earlier, a ball player named Eddie Waitkus, who was playing for the Philadelphia Phillies, was shot by a young fan from Chicago who was obsessed with him. Uh, the actual woman's name was Ruth Steinhagen. She was a 19-year-old from Chicago who was so obsessed with uh, with Waitkiss when he played for the Cubs that she would set a place at the dinner table for him, uh, hoping he would one day show up at, at her home. Uh, she was crushed after the 1948 season when Waitkiss was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. She waited until the next season when the Phillies came to Chicago on a road trip. She booked a hotel room in the same hotel where the Phillies were staying, sent a note to Waitkiss to meet her at his room, to meet it, for her to meet him at her room. He showed up and, and she shot him. Um, he survived the chest wound. He went on to play for another five years in the major leagues after some recovery time. Uh, Steinhagen spent three years in the Illinois State Mental Hospital. Waitkiss discouraged uh, charges from being um, uh, levied against her in the case. And she ended up not going to jail for the charge after she spent three years in a, in a mental institution. She spent the next 60 years living very quietly in a secluded life back in her family's home in the northwest side of Chicago. So he took this real-life incident and certainly 
used it as the basis for one of the major incidents in the book when uh, Roy Hobbs gets shot on a train uh, early on in the story. Well, it's actually at the hotel room, but yeah, that's that that one that one storyline story arc uh, is just the intro <laughs> to the natural mm-hmm. itself. But it's followed throughout. Memo is right. Harriet bird later on i mean even her name memo uh i mean she she, memo shows up uh with uh this uh, you know this black dress and red hair the opposite of iris lemon's black hair and red dress and all this stuff in there uh but the memo is her name memo uh is you know (laughs) is tied to harriet bird and all the other women in the story yeah, and that's the one thing about the the book that I remember so vividly is or take away from it is the bird imagery. Well, there's a lot of bird imagery. The the pitch to the whammer is a bird in flight. Uh the uh the one time where Roy Hobbs catches a canary and it's smashed all over his glove and everything. This is the Greek uh ominous omen, you know, when a bird dies, it's like something terrible is going to happen. Uh even when before Roy Hobbs gets sick, you know, as he notices that the hamburgers look like little dead birds and stuff, which uh, they're birds throughout the thing. They're all over the place. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should just like recap the uh, the 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 plot of the natural for those who may not have read it or seen it. But you got 19 year old Roy Hobbs, who is the wonder king, a country bumpkin with a, a great pitching arm uh, on his way to Chicago to try out for the Cubs. Um this is the call to adventure in Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces. Uh, the uh, the hero first is goes off and leaves his home. Uh, he comes from humble beginnings. Uh, it, there's usually a refusal of the call, but if there is not, uh, the hero gets some sort of supernatural aid. He's uh, aided by some sort of uh, old man or an old crone. In this case, it's Sam. In the case of Star Wars, it's Yoda. I mean, you know, these, Kenobi, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there is an element of Mother Nature uh, adding some sort of supernatural uh, element to this uh, quest. Uh, here, it's the lightning striking the tree to make Wonder Boy, etc. Wonder Boy, one of the greatest images in all of uh, imagery. Because that made sense the way I said that. Yes, I did, didn't it? <laughs> but yes. Well, when, I, when I read about Wonder Boy in the book, it made me think. I, I thought I had heard a story about that before somewhere, so I Googled it. And uh, apparently that's one of the influences for this was a guy named Heine Groh, who played for the Reds in the 1920s, who had a homemade bat called his Bottle Bat. I figured out where I had read it was Lawrence Ritter's book, The Glory of, Our, of Their Times, which was about uh, a number of accounts from the 1960s of players who had played earlier in the 20th century and Ritter had interviewed Grow. By the way, I almost consider that book to be fiction. I think it's a great book, but the voices are just too pure. You know, I yeah. think, uh, I mean, uh, when you hear Rulebach and all these people speak, I mean, they're, we're, we're hearing quotes from them in that book, and it's, uh, I love the book, but I just, I, you know, it can't be real. <laughs> <laughs> I have not read it, but I feel like I will read it in the course of doing our new book club. So the story from there, um, it is, it, I mean, let's, let's talk about the, the Arthurian legend uh, within the natural coach, the, 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 uh, the Knights of the round table, the Arthurian legend, how should we do it? Well, it's all based, uh, I mean, this is the mode with which he goes through Campbell's hero of a thousand faces and he uses the vegetative myth, uh, 
rebirth in spring, you know, and and going through the summer and all of this sort of stuff, where there is a vegetative god of sorts in these myths. And it's uh, often, uh, this comes to play in the Arthurian legend, Uh, the whole thing with Fisher King, the Percival and the Fisher King, uh, and the fertility aspect of this. The, The Fisher King who is this vegetative god, is inherently tied to the land. And when the the king is sick, the land is sick. And this is, uh, the Fisher King is obviously Pop Fisher who needs to be uh, revitalized. And Percival must find a way to heal the Fisher King. By the way, the Percival is on his way to become a knight uh, when he comes across the Fisher King. Uh, The uh, the obvious connection there. Roy Hobbs, uh, who and if you take his name, the Roy is the Latin root for king, and Hobbes is horse, or it may be that uh, Roy is hobbled, uh, whatever, or the king is hobbled, whatever, in his uh, quest to kind of uh, correct uh, Fisher's, or in this case, Pop Fisher's uh, search for the Holy Grail, which is the pennant, which is unachievable, which Pop Fisher's never been able to get. Uh, we can also look at, in the Arthurian aspect of, of this being uh, Wonder Boy could be Lancelot's strength. It could be Arthur's Excalibur. All of these people have wounds in the side, by the way, uh, just as does Roy Hobbs and Jesus and Moses and everybody else. All of these other, uh, you know, the uh, and they all fail in the end due to their tragic flaw, which is tied to their hubris. Which, uh, in the case of Roy Hobbs, is his belief that he can uh, have it all. He can all of his appetites, money, and women and fame can all be achieved, and he can. Uh, uh, he can take the 35000 from the judge and everything will be good. Yeah, there you have it. <laughs> well, I, I always t- I took the natural aspect of it, I guess to a greater extent reading the book than I did from seeing the movie, that he had he left the purity of the American West, the rural experience, and is going into the city and he's experiences his, all these artificial things in the city and he becomes a product of this corrupt urban environment. So I see there being this juxtaposition, juxtaposition with that. Uh, and I think that makes sense with Malamud being a a guy who is from New York who moves out to Oregon as a teacher at Oregon State College, which becomes Oregon State, is writing this book while in Cor- Corvallis, Washington, far from his home. So I think these kind of juxtapositions um, reflect what he was feeling and what he's experiencing as as a as a uh, person displaced in many respects in in a school far from uh, his. Uh, his uh, his indigenous uh, environment. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I I totally agree with you. I mean, even the title of the book, "The Natural," in the Middle Ages, "natural" meant an innocent fool. It doesn't have the same kind of meaning that we apply to Willie Mays and, and whatnot in some sort of derogatory way today. I, I the rest of Mal- Malamud's books, the Fixer and uh, the Tenants, and all of these things are dealing with anti-Semitism and uh, different aspects of ghetto life uh, in the big city. I, I think you're absolutely right with that. In a strange way, the book also reminded me a little bit of the way Mickey Mantle gets depicted in the Jane Levy biography, The Last Boy, that he is this he is this bumpkin-like character. In the book, he's a lot less, probably a lot less likable character in many respects uh, than the way he's perceived in the film. I think that's also oh, yeah. true. I, I agree. The, uh, well, yeah. the, 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 the Levy biography presents a less romanticized version of Mantle than the public perception of his of him is as well. So you see 
this guy going from a rural environment to the city, not really sure how to handle a lot of the aspects of it, both in Roy Hobbs and then also in the way Mantle gets portrayed. And, and in my opinion, the very excellent biography uh, Jane Levy did of him a couple of years ago. I can see the connection, uh, uh, but I, uh, the, uh, I don't think Malama did since he wrote this in 52. Oh, certainly yeah, not. Yeah. Certainly not. <laughs> Maybe Jane Levy did, though. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, you got to think about the, the wide range of authors who were inspired by this book just to be authors, mm-hmm. not even just to be baseball fans. But, you know, the, the writing is so exquisite. Coach, let me ask you, why? why give me a, a historical significance to the book itself and why it's taught in schools. I mean, you mentioned. You well, know, I don't know how many schools it's taught in. Uh, the uh, yeah. I taught it. It was a way for me to throw in a baseball book, you know, uh, <laughs> and get idiots like you to read. Uh, the, uh, but it worked. The uh, it's an easy book to teach, and it's when you have a book that's full of mythology and motifs and symbols, and it has a real strict pattern, and it follows. I mean, it has all sorts of esoteric connections. I mean, when you're saying we're taking this from Finnegan's Wake, you know, we're you know we're there. Uh, I mean, there's a real connection between the wasteland, uh, you know, Elias the wasteland in here, and all all of the. Right. Uh, I mean, we see when Royce starts to to lose and he can't hit the ball and the field dries up and uh, Pop uh, starts looking old and all this stuff. This is right out of the wasteland. Uh, I mean, and it at times it's almost corny, the connections. Uh, the connections to the, uh, the myth hero is, uh, I mean, Malamud even uses the the term monomyth, uh, which comes from uh, Finnegan's Wake, which is Joyce's term. Yeah. So I mean, uh, it's it's a way I could teach uh, baseball a, a baseball book, and it, it still uh, have AP quality. Yeah. Again, to me, what's what's uh, what I what I'd like to point out about the natural for those who uh, have read it or are about to read it, obviously from hearing this podcast, how it reminds about. Uh, the poetry of the game, whether it's his intention, he being Malamud, to, uh, you know, use the uh, stage, if you will, of the game of baseball to write a story about the great American myth hero, or if he really got enamored with baseball as he was researching it, uh, the poetry of of the game is what comes through. Like, at no point is there... Uh, yeah. Uh, Clayton, let me ask you a question. Uh, where Do you... No, in your research, do you know where he came across these stories about baseball? There's there's talk based on a couple of articles I read from the Oregon State University alumni uh, magazine, which suggested there was a janitor who worked at the English department at Oregon State who was a great fan of baseball, loved spinning tall tales about the game's past, telling stories about it, who befriended Malmud, and it ended up having an influence on some of the stories he uh, he told in his book. And that also leads me to think it, it, it interests me how much of a novel of the actual game of baseball this is. And I think probably hearing about the game directly from a person, learning it almost potentially learning it directly from from another person. It is very much a book about the actual playing of the game in a lot of respects. Much of the drama is built around actual uh, aspects of playing baseball. I think that's different than a couple of novels I've read recently, which are uh, football novels. Um, uh, Everybody's All American by Frank DeFord, uh, Peter Gens, North Dallas 40, Dan Jenkins, Semi Tough. 
They're all excellent novels, very different novels. But that is more about the culture of being a football player or being in a football organization as opposed to the actual game. You really get a sense of the drama and, as you're saying, Tucker, the poetry of the actual game of baseball from Malamud's book. And I wonder if, in a way, because he was an outsider to being a baseball fan, there wasn't this assumption of that in a way, that he felt the need to present this as something that he had researched and learned and listened to people talk about as he formulated a book related to this topic. The, uh, I had heard also that uh, he interviewed Robin Roberts for some mm. time uh, and got some stories from Robin Roberts, which would uh, kind of fit in with the Eddie Wakeus thing as they were teammates and whatnot. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, and I mean, here, here's, 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 a, here's a favorite passage from the book. Uh, Wonder Boy flashed in the sun. It caught the sphere. Uh, it caught the sphere. It was biggest. A noise like a twenty-one gun salute cracked the sky. There was a straining, ripping sound, and a few drops of rain spattered to the ground. Someone then shouted, "It was raining cats and dogs." By the time Roy got in from second, he was wading in water ankle deep. That's awesome. And at no yes. and at no point is it, you know, and he struck the ball with the mighty launch angle. Sending it into the stands at well over a hundred miles per hour—a great feat by any metric. Surely, Povich. Yeah, truly, Roy Hobbs and his wins above replacement was greater <laughs> than life itself. The, uh, however, there are things too where in the book, and I'm—I don't want to be a critic of it, but where Wonder Boy, which is obviously has some sort of uh, phallic image in this kind of uh, fertility god thing, where when he's slumping, he—it seems to droop and drag through the dugout. Uh, Yet uh, at other times, it was alive in his hands when he's hitting the ball and everything else. And some of that is like, I don't know. (laughs) That's some uh, heavy-handed Freudian imagery right there. I mean, yes, and and symbolizing his youth, his virility, all that stuff. And then as this fades in the book, as he turns into, in a way, he turns into the whammer, becomes like, like Ruth, almost like when he was with the Braves at the end of his career, in a way, he almost seemed like to me. Uh, as as Wonder Boy disappears, you lose the youth. You use you lose those <laughs> things you brought with you from the West, right? And Wonder yeah. Boy is certainly ripping and straining and <laughs> all these different things. Yeah, in the beginning, it's also uh, there are some you know where Wonder Boy splits with the same ball that hits Iris in the stands. Come on now, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little. <laughs> yep, you don't realize it at first, but that may be Malamud thinking he could do that. You know. <laughs> Well, okay, so to bring it back on the rails just a little bit, you know, the transcendent element of this book, you really need to read books like this to to fully appreciate and remind yourself about what's great about baseball. Because, again, you know, the nonfiction baseball works that are out there, there's very little that's romantic, if anything, with Moneyball. No offense to, you know. Mr. Lewis out there, but like really anything since Jim Bowden's book in a way, since ball four, since this kind of books about these anti-hero kind of things. In a lot of ways, there's been a push in that direction for the last 30, 40 years of baseball books. So they're either very analytical or to some extent, they're trying to add nuance to, you know, these heroic figures. It's, it's, it's yeah, this is a great contrast from that. I think Clayton, you ever read the book, the catcher was a spy. Uh, I have not. It's on my shelf right near where the natural was. For, uh, I mean, because uh, Max uh, was, oh, what was his last name? Uh, 
Mo Berg? Or? Oh, yeah, Mo Berg. Yeah, Mo yeah, Berg is yeah. certainly an anti-hero in a way. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. That one's gonna come up on the on the book club. We'll definitely have to do the catcher. We're gonna clean my. We're gonna clean the fourth shelf on my uh, uh, bookshelf to, uh, down with all these books we're doing. Oh yeah, well, coach and I did one that was a podcast that was we went through like nine and once, and it's just you can't. Yeah. With a good rich novel, you can't give five minutes to each. You got to do a full podcast like this. So. Well, yeah. I, I enjoyed listening to the. I learned there were several books I'd never heard of when you guys were discussing. I mean, I'd heard of Bang the Drum Slowly and a couple of the, a couple of the others, but several of those books were completely unknown to me and i enjoyed that podcast a lot hey thanks <laughs> but yeah it's true you don't have think- you read the art of fielding i have not i've read very little i've read a ton of baseball nonfiction, but very little baseball fiction the uh the art of fielding is i mean that's very realistic it's college baseball but it's very real tremendously created characters the characters are very rich i mean uh, uh to to finish the thought about the poetry of this book and the poetry of baseball I was reminded of that very element, that beautiful element of the game, but it actually came in at a time where I had forgotten about baseball, you know, post-strike and the Braves after they collapsed in the 96 World Series and couldn't make it back the following two years, you know, I somewhat lost interest. And then by reading The Natural, it's just immediately after that, I watched the Ken Burns documentary for the first time. I watched Eight Men Out about the Black Sox scandal, which is what transpires at Another the end. Another good book. Well, I mean, I'm, Asimov's I, book. I realize I'm referencing the films at this moment. Um, I guess, Clayton, I, did you have a similar takeaway? I mean, I don't know how far you've ever been from your love of the game, but... Oh, I, I think that happens to a lot of people during their adolescence. I think you get to a certain point. I think it's usually late in middle school well, where all of a sudden, like, the guy in the band you like is cooler than the guy on the basketball team or the baseball team. I know that certainly happened to me. I think in a lot of ways, for a lot of my adolescence, I was kind of kind of out of baseball. Not that I wasn't paying attention to some extent, but uh, I, th- I think you get interested in other things during your adolescence. And, uh, yeah, I probably journeyed back during college. I started reading baseball books in college um, as a result of a professor I had who started who treated them like they were something serious and worthy of uh, worthy of consideration uh, if you were you know a thoughtful person and uh, that's what really got me back into reading about baseball so I I think I was probably actually off the farm for a longer period of time than you were I was more delusional I uh, I, I still when I was in middle school I still thought I was going to be a center fielder for the Red Sox you know uh, forget Jimmy Pearsall. Uh, the uh, but I, I too though uh, in the uh, late 60s early 70s uh, and uh, <laughs> drugs sex and rock and roll got me diverted as well but it was uh, something I'm sure well, for me it was mostly rock and roll yeah well, the uh, the 75 <laughs> series brought me back in yep one of my seminal moments in baseball yeah. from our baseball uh, moments podcast you know we're gonna talk about the uh the film uh at the uh coming into home but uh i don't want to jump to that quite yet since malamud is borrowing so to speak from uh you know real baseball figures clayton what's the rundown what what give us the easter egg rundown of who the characters in the book are in real life uh gus hands the gambling man seems like uh seems like arnold rothstein to me um is Pop supposed to be Miller Huggins? I'm not that, that one kind of I was wondering about who he's supposed to be. Uh, Judge Banner, the owner of the ball club, seems like this unholy alliance of uh, of uh, Commissioner Landis and Charlie Comiskey to me. Um, 
those would be some of the ones that immediately pop to mind. Um, the Whammer would be Babe Ruth. I, I, I agree with those. I think Pops, uh, his blunder that's referred to, that uh, is often related. Chuck Hostetler falls down uh, and uh, in the 45 series for the Tigers, blows it for the Tigers. Uh, that, uh, I think, is often equated with Pops' blunder, since that's exactly what Pops does, is fall down and blow the game. Uh, I think we can also, Babe Ruth, uh, as also is somewhat Roy Hobbs as well. I mean, you know, a, a pitcher who turns into the greatest hitter in the game, you know. Uh, and he becomes himself at the end. Right, He right. strikes himself out in the beginning and then becomes himself <laughs> right. all over again. Yeah, right. Uh, the, uh, I, I think there's also a connection between Ted Williams and uh, Roy Hobbs, as Ted Williams always said he wanted to be the greatest hitter there ever was. And, and also uh, being a man of the American West, I think, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Big guy and everything. And you can uh, also, Ted Williams left the game for, for service, you know, mm-hmm. for what it's worth. There was a gap in his career. And part of the myth of the Royal Hobbs, as far as baseball goes, is that he was kind of the greatest that never was. You know, if he's not right. shot in his prime, Ted Williams being shot at in his prime. So you and, see where I'm going it. with this. Uh, I think Max Mercy is one of the more interesting characters in the book. He is the one that exposes everything. He's, he's kind of an evil character. And I, I even uh, I, I thought that was the greatest portrayal in the movie was uh, having Robert Duvall as Max Mercy there. Uh, what do you who do you think Max Mercy represents? Any particular writer? Is he like a Graham McNamee, Jimmy Cannon? I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm honestly not that well versed in the sports writers of the, of, the, of the 20s and 30s to have a have a reasonable opinion on it. Well, I, and I don't think. I mean, uh, shoot, they're uh, they're Grantland Rice and Shirley Povich and sure. those sort of things. Uh, I, I think this is somebody who spoils it all, and in many ways, you might. I mean, this is a stretch, but uh, at uh, Ring Lardner's funeral. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, gives the eulogy and talks about how uh, Ring Lardner ruined his life within a 90-foot square, uh, saying that Ring Lardner, who is the first great baseball novelist, uh, uh, who wrote about baseball all the time until the 19 uh, World Series, uh, that that he's ruined his life. You know, I mean, he's kind of exposed Fitzgerald is kind of exposing, uh, the hero of baseball as, uh, having spent a wasted life. And that's kind of what Max Mercy does, but that's a real stretch. I'd also kind of wondered about Walter Winchell as a possibility as being this kind of gossipy guy who's looking to get you on the, 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 Noteworthy person. Oh well, and that uh, and hitting on sensationalism and uh, yes, giving the the five thousand dollars if you can you know come up with the uh, the reason uh, or where he came from and all that stuff. That that's a good call. Uh, what about Bump Bailey? Is, isn't there? I mean, nobody's died running into a wall, but uh, who who is the the Dodger that uh, Carl, Carl uh, Ferrillo? Is that uh, Ferrillo? Yeah, no, I'm thinking of somebody else. Who is a uh, oh, 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 uh, Pete. Um, Pete Reiser. Pete, yes. Pete Reiser, uh, who was often injured running into walls, and he was like a batting champion. And it was around the same time. He's like late forties, maybe. You know, I, I'm sure the uh, the Pete Reiser family doesn't like the connection to Bump Bailey, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and I wonder, are the Knights more the Giants or the Dodgers? I think the obvious answer is the Dodgers, but I think maybe. 
Um, uh, Banner is probably more like Horace Stone in, in a way. He seems a little bit uh, kind of mishavisham from great expectations like in certain respects with this just kind of decaying world around him like the Dodgers at the Polo Grounds. The uh, Interesting, you should say that the uh, in Great Expectations is one of the books that's looked upon uh, as following the uh, hero of a thousand faces as cleanly as any book. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, at most Dickens books, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, they all do. Um, Moby Dick, that's Melville. But um, where were we? What were we talking who's, Ban- who's Otto P. Zip? That's the real question. Well, it's not Eddie Goodell. <laughs> uh, but but that makes sense that he could be somebody. You, you're saying whether these were the Dodgers or the Giants. I, I don't know that. I, I think the Knights are more Arthurian than they are either the Giants right. or the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, And they are playing on a wasteland. I, I don't know if the Polo Grounds or Ebbets, Ebbets Field was always considered a, a jewel. Uh, I don't know. Were the Polo Grounds ever? Well, they were pretty dilapidated. Well, it's because uh, they were so- left. Yeah. They were, they were so cavernous yeah. was the thing. I mean, Not the, really a base, better for polo than for baseball. Right, right. Right. I definitely think Giants and even, you know, the, the film takes a, a more uh, sepia tone to it. But so. what I was going to say, Otto Zip seems like he would have been at Ebbets Field. Uh, right. right. <laughs> Otto Zip being the uh, uh, the dwarf in the film that, yes. or in the, in the book that cheers for Bump Bailey. And after Bump Bailey dies, he refuses to give that same support to Hobbes. I think uh, maybe that... Like- that inspired Pedro Martinez to keep a, uh, a a dwarf in the clubhouse in 04. It could also have inspired Joe Boo. For all we know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, who knows? Makes, makes By good, the way, I do good think horse sense. Uh, what you said about Gus Sands, I definitely think he's supposed to be. And that's the Arnold Rothstein. Now, for those who may not know, Ar- Arnold Rothstein is person accredited with uh fixing the world series right, in 1919. 1919 let's talk about that so oh i can give you a uh a if you're ever in boston tip about that because the hotel buckminster right near fenway park is where the initial discussions of um you know by sports sullivan and all those guys right. about fixing the world series took place if you ever need a public bathroom near fenway park the Uno's, which is downstairs from the Hotel Buckminster, is your easiest choice. All right. That's a good thing to know. <laughs> um, let's talk about the 1919 Black Sox scandal and how, um, I mean, of all the different baseball stories that are weaved into this uh, to this novel, how, how, how heavy do you think uh, Malamud leans on the 1919 White Sox? Uh, Comiskey, uh, the connection between Comiskey and uh, Judge Banner, both uh, very tight waddish, uh, both of them. Uh, I don't want to say cheap, but uh, there is certainly, I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. There you go. That may uh, be too polite. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I don't know that Comiskey was trying to lose uh, the, uh, and he becomes a very defensive character uh, once they go to trial and whatnot. I, you, you, uh, Clayton, you mentioned how there was a connection between Kennesaw Landis as well. Uh, maybe that uh, I, I see the, in the name Judge. Uh, that could be that could be enough. But I, uh, is there something in their characters or something in their I actions? I guess there's a there's a about both of them that they seem to share. Um, that they that they take great pride in being a throwback seems something quite similar about them to me. The, um, uh, that they are not happy with the time period they're in and they make a big part of their identity being that I'm not a part of this time. 
Well, certainly Judge Landis does. Uh, I, I do know Judge Landis always, uh, he was referred to as eagle-eyed uh, and, you know, had a keen eye for things throughout his, uh, and he would like put his chin on the uh, the ledge in front of him to watch the games and stuff uh, with these eagle eyes. And the ju- Judge Banner is uh, you know, nearly blind. I don't, uh, as that's another motif that runs through the, the play, all this lack of vision, you know, Gus's glass eye, et cetera. And that, that could still be a connection kind of in reverse as well. <laughs> Just throwing some crap out there. <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, when, when you, when you uh, coach for you, you know, just having taught literature for, for as long as you have and did, you know, rate how Malamud uses all of these elements of the, th- the journey of a thousand faces. You know, if you had to grade it on a scale of like one to ten. Um, I think uh, his the hero of a thousand faces is somewhat you're not aware of it as you read the book. And that makes it better. Uh, that it, it doesn't hit you over the head with it. Uh, the Arthurian stuff and all of that, that's a little bit more obvious uh, and um, I, I, almost in a Steinbeck kind of way. Uh, Steinbeck always you know, is using the same kind of uh, quest for the grail. Uh, I mean, when I read the book first, I, I got the Arthurian stuff and the the vegetative god. I didn't get the uh, Joseph Campbell connection. I certainly didn't get the Joyce Finnegan's Wake connection. I, I still don't understand Finnegan's Wake. Uh, the <laughs> well, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was told by a professor that the only way to read Finnegan's Wake was out loud at one sitting with a bottle of vodka. Uh, <laughs> and uh, man, I could never make it. Uh, the, uh, but uh, in terms of a literary book, I, I think it's Malamud's second best book. I think it's a, a great novel. As uh, Is it a great baseball novel? That's a different story. Uh, it has uh, a lot of true baseball in it. What you were saying in terms of the poetry, I think uh, a lot of that is Mala Mudd's writing. Uh, the, uh, there is an equal amount of poetry in something that Clayton was mentioning, The Glory of Their Times. There is uh, this kind of uh, connection to uh, a... a a time that is part of our inherent past, our collective unconsciousness, if you will, you know, that we all have this, uh, the whole Kinsella baseball thing where baseball moves on and on and we, you know, and everything else right. changes, blah, blah, blah. The, the, what's that? The, the realism, the, uh, was it, uh, magical realism? Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Clayton, how about for you? I mean, just, just looking at this as a novel, you know, take the uh, the fact that it has to do with baseball, something that we all love to to maybe a fault, but just as a novel, as a work of of fiction. I thought there was a very interesting juxtaposition of the book, which which appealed to me greatly. That there was often this, in addition to the mythical quality of it, there's also this lyrical quality to a lot of the writing, which is then juxtaposed with the the vernacular, the speech of the ball players. So you get a sense of both of these things, which I think makes the speech of the ball players kind of jarring. One thing I thought of was that this is being written around the same time as The Catcher in the Rye, which came out in 49, I believe, and people saw the the use of slang and vernacular, vernacular and that is so striking in a way that that book doesn't really resonate now, I, w- I would argue. Uh, I'm wondering if, if readers at the time were struck by how much you got a sense of the way ballplayers spoke as, as it was juxtaposed with the almost dreamlike 
um, lyricism of uh, Malmud's uh, uh, prose. I agree that uh, he is showing the vernacular uh, or the dialogue of uh, ball players more realistically than it has been portrayed up until that point. Uh, the uh, we are ball players are almost always portrayed as Christy Matthewson, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, up up to that point as all being uh, clean. Or from 1901 on, they're this clean living, uh, honest, uh, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed American youth. Uh, and uh, and all went to Bucknell College and et cetera. Right. Uh, <laughs> and Harvard crafted and, their curveball at Harvard. Uh, and Malamud gives you almost a Cormac McCarthy uh, use of dialogue in the book. Yeah. So, all right, the ending where the uh, the the book goes goes left and the movie goes hard right. Well, coach, take us through how the 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 final act of the book through to the end. Um, is the failure of the American myth. Well, in the third part of the monomyth, there is a return where the hero who has achieved greatness uh, in his quest for the grail or the quest for uh, the ultimate boon is what it's called. Uh, In the return, often there is a reluctance to do this. He's wounded uh, in some way and has to overcome this wounds. He needs help uh, to overcome the wounds just uh, as the hero needs help in the beginning that he gets from uh, Sam. Here he needs uh, Iris to help him at the end uh, or to help Roy Hobbs at the end. Uh, the return to the return is to go to re- back to reality, to leave this mythical world of baseball and to return to a, uh, a life with a wife and what is his already uh, fathered son. Uh, and uh, all of this he learns at the end. Um, the, the trick in returning is to integrate the the wisdom that's obtained in the quest into ordinary life. The problem is Roy doesn't obtain any wisdom. Uh, right. He can't become the master of two worlds. He cannot become the master of reality. He still thinks he can get it all. Thus, he takes the bribe, and at the end, everything just falls apart so quickly. At the end, Max Mercy reveals his taking of the bribe. They find out where he came from, et cetera, et cetera, and he has nothing. Uh, he's left... Uh, a defeated tragic hero. No ball <laughs> crashing into the light stanchion. No, no. <laughs> showering the field with sparks and joy and jubilation. No dramatic film scoring. <laughs> no, 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 none of that. Where well, Randy Newman wasn't there. No, and and, and really, where would you put Robert Redford's Roy Hobbs as far as a fictitious character in American culture? I mean, he's got to be top ten, right? Like how many people oh, well, talk well, about okay. being Roy Hobbs? And you no, know. I, don't, I don't think you can say he's top ten uh, yeah. <laughs> fictional character and uh, from American culture. Uh, certainly, he's in the top ten for baseball heroes from uh, in yeah. American culture. I, you know, he's up top to the close. I mean, I, I know for uh, I think it was in '85 after the movie came out, which was not that popular a movie at the time. Uh, hit for a while, the Roy Hobbs number nine jersey sold more than any other jersey in Major right, League Baseball. Exactly. You know, uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm just as Clayton said earlier, I'm not going to put him there with Holden Caulfield. You know, uh, <laughs> sure. or, or you know, uh, in any of these other you know uh, books that kind of follow the same pattern. 
Yeah. It, it strikes it strikes me as a film that took on a new life on cable television, kind of like Shawshank Redemption did, which also wasn't that big of a hit in its time, which it was on Saturday afternoon after Saturday afternoon after Saturday afternoon on TNT and AMC and stuff, and people grew <laughs> to love it. They both became classics. I think as a result of people watching them a lot of times on cable television, I think both of those films have a great rewatchability to them. They're both depicting a relatively similar time period. Um Oh, I, I agree. I uh, By the way, did you see the movie at, at a theater? No, I was a very little kid at the time. <laughs> I, I took, well, okay, I, I took my son, who was a very little kid at the time, uh, and we were the only two in the theater. And this was uh, what, right when it was released. It was not a big release. Um, the, Which is strange, considering all the firepower that's in it. But uh, yeah. before we go, to because, because there's much to compare and contrast with the movie The Natural versus the book, and really just how books are adapted and changed between uh, printed and uh, celluloid, before we do that, any other any other you know talking points on the book itself? I, I think in terms of the in terms of the ending of the book, one thing that really struck me was the sense of how fragile a thing it is to be great at what you do, and it, the importance of appreciating someone's greatness while it's actually taking place, because it lasts for just a, such a short period of time that he very quickly goes from a great player who'd been great since he was a very young man to being this this middle aged figure who can no longer who can no longer keep up and just appreciating the fle- fleeting nature of greatness. And he's competing against all these other people who are great at their job as well, that it's a one in a million to be a, a great ball player like that. But there are other people at that level too. And even people with remarkable skills can only keep up their extraordinary position for a very short time as he does really over the course of part of one season. Right. The vegetation uh, myth, um, or what is what's the proper way to say that the the vegetative cycle motif uh, at the end. So Roy Hobbs strikes out to the new young gun. So perpetuating the vegetative cycle that it always has to be a cycle of death and rebirth. And his name was Young Blood too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of hit you over the head <laughs> yeah. like symbolism here, um, for sure. With a lot of the <laughs> the names and places and faces. Um, that cycle, it's kind of a jarring ending. It's not just that it's, you know, the, uh, the ending of the book is shoeless Joe essentially. Um, but that it's just jarring. It just cuts you off, you know, much like baseball, baseball and and death itself. One, one swing and it's over. And it is fascinating to me that, so this book is early fifties and mantle, uh, Mickey Mantle becomes the star that he is 52, 53. It almost like predicts him it, it's predictive mm-hmm. of well, mickey man and he was often called the natural yeah and the injury that kind of you know the 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 best that could have been anyway I, I could go on about that because again without this book i'm not doing this podcast right now okay <laughs> so by comparison you have the film uh the natural um the film came correct with the elements that heightened the experience you got from reading the book i mean the cinematography is just lush and gorgeous by uh, Caleb Deschanel, uh, Oscar winning. Uh, it's directed by um, Barry Levinson. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. yeah. Directed by Levinson. However, th- the super happy, ultra wacky ending, fun ending is such a stark contrast from the end of the book that that's where it actually loses points with me. No, I like it. I'm sorry. <laughs> as corny as it is, I like it. I mean, uh, I've said this forever. I have seen the movie. 
more times than I have hairs on my head now. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, and still every time I watch it, when Robert Redford turns to Glenn Close and says, "My father." My father, God, I love baseball. I just weep. Uh, and when you see uh, when he hits the home run, he's rounding the bases right when he turns the corner at second and they shoot to Glenn Close and she draws her hands close to her uh, and she starts to cry. Uh, I'm like, yeah. The, uh, and when uh, at the, even at the end, when he's playing catch with his son in the closing credits, you know, we, you know, if you haven't realize it's his son by the you know uh the uh, but spoiler his, alert the young boy is actually his son the, who is actually in the book is already a father uh, <laughs> the, uh but he and he can't throw uh, that that's that becomes very irritating to me the, the kid is like uh pushing the ball with his elbow out first he uh <laughs> it was like yeah um but all of that stuff, uh, it, it's that's the kind of warmth I want to feel in baseball. You know, I, I don't want to see the, I don't want to see my heroes sell out. You know, yeah, I don't want to see my heroes become juiced. I don't want to see, you know, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm from an era where I don't want to see my hero on another team, uh, which was part of the whole Eddie Wakeus thing. I, I want to see my heroes with my team. Right. Uh, but uh, so I, I like the ending. <laughs> Clayton, feel free I, I, to jump I, I like in. the end. I like the ending to the film too, and I think film just demands different things from an audience than a book does. A book, a book is a very interior thing, whereas a film is this opportunity for the audience to externalize its emotions along with what's on the screen. I think, I think it serves the purposes of cinema well that it was a a film that has this great emotional release at the end. Which uh, which can really uh, make an audience um, feel good about the two hours they invested in the film. No, it's very I cathartic. That, yes, absolutely. Well, and I, I realize I'm I'm crapping all over one of the greatest scenes in American cinema. <laughs> well, I think it's very similar to Rocky, which is a few years earlier. That Rocky offers a similar kind of catharsis, um, even in the first film where he where he loses the fight on a split decision. I think there's a sense that he's accomplished something just by by persevering through this battle with Apollo Creed. So, and, and both those films, I think, have a kind of certain uh, throwback to a Frank Capra quality to, to about them uh, that is different than a lot of the other films of that time period, which are, you know, aiming for this this uh, this gritty, the way life really is, Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing, which I think is great. But I think it's nice to have films which serve, in many ways, the traditional purpose of movies too. I, I think uh, the connection that the film makes with. Um, our youth and the connection between father and son. And we see, you know, in the opening scene where uh, he sees his father die underneath the tree that will make wonder uh, all this stuff and uh, all this stuff. My father, God, I love my father. This really isn't portrayed in the book. It, the father mm -hmm. figure is Sam Simpson, uh, who's an alcoholic, you know, who wants Roy to be what he wants no, he wants himself to be what Roy. Well, you know what I mean, uh, right? The, he wants Roy to become what he, what he Sam never could be. There you go. Yeah, uh, I mean, fathers and, wanting to pass on that their sons have a better life than them. In the movie, if we're where we have this connection, uh, this almost mythical connection between father and son, which every father and son does somewhere over baseball at some point or another. Uh, <laughs> the uh, you can't you can't stamp that out you can't just you know say uh to hell with that and put uh and have him 
say, oh, I want 35,000. Uh, right. And take the strike. Yeah, that's, or, well, he try he tries at the last moment to hit him, but yeah, you know. <laughs> that's 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 what eight men out is. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, most but even that even eight men out has that. Uh, you know, say it ain't so, Joe. The, the you know the monumental uh, mm-hmm. uh, jug at you at the end. Yeah, which is the final line in the book. Uh, say it ain't true, Roy. Right, right. That's that's near plagiarism <laughs> by Mister Malamud. Um, but obviously, you know, most books that get adapted into feature films really fail to capture those elements of the author. And rarely, if ever, do they enhance. But I've got three people on this podcast and two are saying that the movie is actually greater than the book. Oh, no, no. I'm just saying I liked the the movie better than the book. I'm not saying it's greater. And I agree with Clay. I, I, you, I you, you can't. It's apples and oranges. True. Well, and I think that's true. Anytime you fill you film a book, that you have to just you, you can't do all of the internal things that a, that a book does. You have to move when you're a film too. In a way, a book can ponder things for a long period of time. And I, I think I think the best adaptations of books don't try to follow uh, the 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 book chapter and verse. I think they try to become their own work of art. And I think that's what's so great about the film version of the natural. Well, it's funny you should say that they you have to keep moving because you do realize if uh, the natural was played at full speed, it would be 27 minutes long. <laughs> That's true. So much slow motion. <laughs> I, I also I also believe uh, that Clayton's right in this, that uh, a movie uh, adaption of a book needs to be a progressively moving thing. I think the greatest uh, movie production from a book that I've ever seen was Apocalypse Now, Tower right, of Darkness. I agree. Yeah. And, and you know, which is placed, you know, fifty it's even predicted in the book, you know, the movie is. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah, Heart the of The story will be told fifty years in the future. Yeah. yeah. Almost to the to the to the day. But a Heart a Heart of Darkness podcast may Yeah, well yeah. may not find this same audience. <laughs> I mean, I, I will. I mean, again, I lo- look. I do love the movie. Okay, right. Apples to oranges here, and I and I get all that. And you know, it's the cinematography is just so beautiful, and the cast. Oh my god, this is like such a loaded rock star cast. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, the uh, but let let's say we don't know who uh, Glenn Close is. Uh, when that movie's made, I mean, she. What was the movie she did? The, uh, well, Fatal Attraction. Yeah, Fatal was Attraction. The one. She does after this, you know. Sure. Uh, what kind of put her on the map? Uh, Geraldine. I always mix her up with. I always mix her up with Meryl Streep myself. Oh well, uh, yeah, I have at times. Uh, the uh, early on, maybe it's hard to compare them right now. Yeah. Uh, however, Meryl Streep is married to Robert Redford now. Uh, so <laughs> How's that for you? Yeah. Uh, Geraldine Chaplin. I don't know how popular she was at the time, uh, but certainly Robert Duvall taking a secondary role, you know, in this thing. Yeah. Uh, the uh, and uh, William uh, Brindley uh, just and uh, what's his name? Richard uh, um, Barnesworth. Uh, Barnesworth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, I mean, the, they're type ca- uh, characters, but there's Oscars um, all over that movie. Oh, yeah. uh, there are. Joe Don Baker is the whammer. Right. 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 Who was? Yeah. I mean, you look at him and like, oh yeah, this Babe Ruth, uh, better than <laughs> William Bendix. Uh, the uh, oh yes, yes. I think William Bendix and uh, Robert Redford could have platooned at first base. Yeah. The uh, and you could put it in Gary Cooper there too. Uh, yes. Well, shoot. Hey, Michael Madden. 
Madsen is Bump Bailey. I forget about him, you know. He he kind of plays Bump Bailey and Reservoir Dogs to a much darker degree. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. Uh, do uh, Did I mention we don't know who Kim Basinger is at that time either, really? Or yeah. do we? Um, you know, so. it's, it's, it was, it was actually, a, I think she had been a Bond girl before then. It, it was, it was definitely an, an ingenue moment, but right. she, uh, before the natural, she was in, uh, from here to eternity, the TV mini series. Well, um, I'm, I'm literally reading right now the, the big credits, the, the man who loved women never say never again. There's your Bond movie. Yeah. Uh, a mother load and hard country. So, I think the Bond movie. The Bond was, movie. Uh, was... But really, this puts her on the map because shortly thereafter, you've got Nine and a Half Weeks and Blind Date and No Mercy. And my stepmother is an alien. And then she did some movie about a guy dressed as a bat. I guess that was, that was kind I, of I significant. Didn't know this until I, I didn't know this until I was looking at the IMDb site for the film, but Super Joe Charbonneau, the uh, former Indians uh, rookie of the year, was one of the uh, generic guys on the nights. Oh, really? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I was just looking at the list before we before we got on here. I was like, which one was this? <laughs> he? He was I, the guy who was opening bottles with his eye socket and stuff like he, he did in real life. The, uh, <laughs> He's a really I, wild character. I, I love looking at uh, who are the the ex baseball players that play players in movies. Uh, you know where we see Roger Clemens and Cobb and you know that sort of thing. Yeah, John mm-hmm. Smoltz and the changeup. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Class sadly overlooked at Oscar time. <laughs> um, yeah. What else? What, I mean, it, oh, and where would we would be remiss? We're saving it, of course. The best part for last uh, about the uh, the film. But the soundtrack. Oh, the score. Uh, God bless. Yeah. One of the greatest soundtracks ever, period. Amen. It was, it's been used for two different Olympics. You know, they, uh, sure. uh, it's been used for everything. It's made Randy Newman a very wealthy man. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah. It also, you know, uh, his father at, at one point, I don't know if it's still true, but it, at, he was, had won more Oscars than anybody else uh, and was named Alfred E. Newman of all people. <laughs> Very bizarrely, there was a high school football team uh, in my area when I was a kid, and they would come out to that, um, which seems probably next to um, next to maybe coming out to uh, uh, John Fogarty Center Field, the second weirdest possible thing for a uh, football team to come out to the field to. Uh, yeah. I can think of some weirder. Well, no, yeah, but it, it seems pretty poetic for a football team to come out to. You know, yeah. I mean, a football team should be coming out to something by Queen or something. <laughs> Well, I, I love that the marching band had to sit there and wait for it to get played. Right, yeah, there you go. But really, those, <laughs> those, uh, what is it? Uh, those six yeah. notes are some of the most seminal. You hear those notes in that in that sequence, you want to get up and go seize the day. <laughs> Next to Jaws, never before have two notes been so effective <laughs> in in a movie. So. You know, it's very similar to the notes that are played in uh, what's uh, Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Lasting. That was random. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, that score, I listened to it just the other night. And, and you know, again, the, the, the elements of the film enhanced and captured all of the different elements of the book, which is really hard to do. I give it a lot of credit for that. And and I think the soundtrack is what really, it ties the room together. <laughs> and without that soundtrack, I don't, you know, 
Coach, as you said, Robert Redford is terrible at playing baseball. Well, I, I don't know that he's terrible. He's not Tom Selleck, but, uh, you know, or John <laughs> Cusack or some of the people that can actually play. Uh, Martin Sheen. Uh, the, uh, but every ball that he's hitting that he's pulling is actually a little pop-up over the third base, you know, in foul territory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he. That's uh, how good Wonder Boy is. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, but he's not as bad as Gary Cooper, who they had to like film everything backwards, you know, and make him run to third and everything. <laughs> That's what, I think film, what film was that? In? Was, no, and the Pride of the Yankees. Pride of the Yankees. Yeah. I think William Bendix was portraying Babe Ruth in 1948, not <laughs> yeah. Babe Ruth 1922. Oh, I agree. I agree. Hey, actually, uh, I thought John Goodman. It was all right as as Babe yeah. Ruth, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. So finally, coming into home, where does this book rank all time? Where does The Natural by Bernard Malamud rank all time as far as baseball books? Coach, you all go right, first. Well, all right. Let's clarify baseball novels. Baseball novels. Okay. Let's do baseball or, or, novels. Works of fiction. Because uh, uh, just like you can't really compare the movie to the book, you can't compare fiction to nonfiction in, in that sense. Sure. Uh, the uh, and I, I would put it. I'm certainly going to put it in my top ten, which I have for a long time. But I'm probably I'm going to put it closer in my top four or so. Okay, top four. Clayton, your thoughts. This is this is the first baseball novel, other than possibly a Matt Christopher book when I was a kid that I've read. I've read some other sports fiction, uh, boxing and football. It strikes me as quite similar to Frank DeFord's Every Everybody's All American in certain respects about this this person who you see losing losing their edge over time. And I, I think it merits uh, its reputation as a great novel, as DeFords does. Um, so to me, it, it belongs uh, in, in, in whatever canon there is for sports uh, sports literature. I would have to agree. And it's my favorite of all time because I think outside of this and maybe High Pockets and Casey at the Bat, I don't know if I've read a lot. A lot of baseball fiction. That's going to change. That's going to change as we move forward. Well, all right. Well, that was great. Hey, there you go. Our first uh, Running the Bases book club. And for the next episode, we're going to be doing If I Never Get Back by Daryl Brock. Coach, you've read it. Clayton, I don't think. uh, Never. Never, never. So that'll be a good one. So if those listening on the pod want to get a, a jump start, that will be next month. We'll talk about If I Never Get Back. By Daryl Brock. So, guys, thanks so much, and uh, extra special thanks to you, Mister Mister Trudor. Um, anything you want to plug? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Our oh, pl- our pleasure. Oh, I, I'd be I'd be happy to plug enough stuff to fit on a NASCAR. Um, <laughs> I write for Down the Drive. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter: D O W N T H E D R I V E. That's the Cincinnati Bearcats uh, SB Nation blog for Cincinnati Bearcats athletics. I also work. I also help uh, work with the biography project for Saber, the Society for American Baseball Research. Who you can follow on Twitter s a b r at s a b r. You can also have a look at my Twitter account uh, where I talk about what I'm writing, both for Saber and for Down the Drive, as well as commenting on the world of sports. Uh, you can spell my uh, address at c l a y t o n t r u t o r. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. And uh, you're, you're a professor as well. I know this. Um, did you finish your uh, PhD? Where, where are you with, uh, I think last- uh, I, I'll be, def- I'll be defending that later this year. So we're, we're getting, we're getting there. Yes. I, I, I teach at Northeastern. I'm working on my PhD at Boston college. Well, there you so, go. Hey, you know, we got a connection there. 
Oh, we do. Yeah. Oh, you have a connection to Coach that you didn't even know. Go, go ahead. I, I went to Boston College for a oh, year. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. wow. Played some ball there. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Where was the ball field when you played? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I know I had to make a, a mile run before every game, and I was able to duck into a bar. I mean, before every practice. <laughs> Down at nice. Cleveland Circle? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. Well, we'll have to talk about BC sometime. I went there for one year. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, he went to a lot of places for one year or less. But at any rate, well, um, this was great. And Clayton, thank you so much again. And we'll definitely have you on for uh, each and every of the uh, RTB Book of the Month podcast. So thank you. I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I as well. So, and a thank you as always to everyone listening to the podcast uh, on SoundCloud or on iTunes or on both. Uh, you can follow all things Running the Bases at our website, runningthebases.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Running the Base, and you can follow us on Instagram as well at Running the Bases. So there you have it. For Coach Jordan Bounds, uh, for Mr. Clayton Trudor, I am Tucker Wells. This is the Running the Bases podcast coming into home, and we're safe. Gentlemen, y'all have a fantastic evening. You as well. Thank you. No nice talking with you, Coach. Nice to talk to you again, Tucker. You yeah, too, you too, Clayton. Uh, let me say, when I went to BC, it was my baseball coach told me that. Uh, well, he just told me that's where I was going. I didn't have any parents or anything, so uh, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Uh, and but it was one of the only schools that would give me any money and let me keep my hair long. In 1970, <laughs> that was very important to me. Were you guys playing in the ECAC? Is that who, what league you were yeah, playing? Yeah, I believe so. I know very little except that the best player on our team was named Booby. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a big we'll Louis Tiant fan in those days. Oh, so. yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, Clayton, have a good one, dude. I'll talk to you soon. All right, take care. Good night. All right, a thank you as always to Mr. David Wingarten, who provides our intro and outro music. His album, The Truth Is, I Don't Know, is available on iTunes and on Amazon. A special shout out to Wicked Cushions. Uh, I needed to replace the ear pads on my Sony headphones, uh, not only to record this podcast, but importantly to edit it. And Wicked Cushions hooked me up. They make the world's most unique and comfortable ear pads for Beats, Bose, Sony, Audio-Technica, V-Moda. Uh, give your old headphones a makeover today. Check out wickedcushions.com. And follow them on Instagram, at Wicked Cushions, all one word, lowercase. And we always close the Running the Bases podcast by saying we're coming into home and we're safe. We certainly hope everyone is staying safe at home. So, for Coach Jordan Bounds, for Clayton Trudor, I am Tucker Wells. This is the Running the Bases podcast. We're coming into home and we're safe. Thanks so much for listening, as always. Mm-hmm.